0: Welcome to the Bethany Community Church Sermon Podcast. This ministry is intended to inspire you and help bring solutions to the challenges of life. Today's message is titled, Facing Our Dark Place, and it is part of the Our Time to Shine sermon series. For more information about other ministries here at Bethany Community Church, you can visit us at our website at bccma.org, or you can always send us an email at office at bccma.org and now here's Pastor Phil McCutcheon. Uh, boy, I'm excited about the new series. Uh, our time our time to shine. I, I think the, the times that we live in the title kind of gives itself away as to what we're talking about. Um, I'm intrigued as I look at Jesus' appearance on Earth as it's recorded in Matthew and in Matthew chapter 4 we see Jesus uh, appearing his first public appearance he's baptized in water and he comes out of the water the Heavenly Father says this is my beloved son whom I'm well pleased he then is led by the Holy Spirit to be tempted of the devil in the wilderness and him and the devil get in a cage match and he wins and he's victorious he comes out of he comes out of that 40 days of, of being tested and the, the scripture says that he came in the power of the spirit. So he starts to uh, he starts to heal the sick, and starts to do miracles. And then he gets into chapter 5, and he does what no other leader in history, no other history maker did. You expect that the next step, now that he's demonstrated his brand, he's going to sell his brand and his brand would be himself and he's going to say look guys the Heavenly Father has told all of you who I am I've defeated the arch enemy Satan I perform miracles follow me I will show you the way I will win the victory for you I will remove oppression from you me 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 that's what I said that's what any other leader would have done Jesus begins chapter 5 talking about you. Talking about us. He starts chapter 5 with what we call the Beatitudes. Blessed are you. Blessed are you. Blessed are you. Eight times. Eight times. He says, here's how you can be a blessed person on the earth. He's talking like he's planning on turning this whole thing over to us. And then... He gets down in chapter uh, verse 16 of chapter 5. Verse 11, I mean. Verse 11, chapter 5, and he says this. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Wait a minute. Where is he going? Rejoice and be glad. Do what? Let persecution, suffering, stress... "...be a signal that it's time to rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can you be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world, a town built on a hill cannot be hidden, neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl instead they put it in the instead they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house in the same way let your light shine before men that they may see your good works or see your good deeds and glorify your father in heaven so where do you feel insulted devalued voiceless disrespected neglected pressured persecuted insulted misunderstood misrepresented or afraid. That's your dark place. And you will want to be reactionary. you'll want to fight, flee, hide or hurl, simmer or rage, depending on your personality. huh? Is that somebody help me out? I like it when people help me out. But Christ says in your insult, insulted, devalued, voiceless, insulted, Neglected, stressed out, persecuted, misrepresented, frightened space. He says rejoice and be glad. Let the stress be a signal to be glad. Let it be a signal to brighten up. Let it be a signal to lighten up. Let it be a signal to rejoice in your own significance." you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. There was a man one time who had a job in the olden days to be a lamp man for the railroad and he would hold his lantern and if there was a problem he would do this and the train would know he needed to stop. One day the the bridge was out and the, the train was coming and he waved his lantern train kept coming, waves again, the train kept coming. The train goes p- zooming past him into the ravine where the bridge used to be. And so he gets called to court, and the, the, they have a court case to see if he was culpable. And the judge asks him, were you there on the night that the train went into the ravine? And the man said, yes, I was there. Did you have your lantern? He said, yes, I had my lantern. Did you wave your lantern? Yes, I waved my lantern. And so the judge pronounced him not guilty. The next day, he's talking to a friend, and he says, I'm glad he didn't ask me if my lamp was lit. God is looking at you today, and I know that you, I'm probably 100% in the room, believe in Jesus. But that's not the question. The question Jesus implies to us is, are you ready to be like Jesus? Because Jesus, the light of the world, said, you're the light of the world. Jesus, the salt of the earth, the preserving influence of the earth, that which gives the earth its makes it tolerable, palatable, to use a culinary phrase, word. Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. Now, there are a few things that come to mind when I read this and when I think about this. One is Jesus is asking me, to, to think about being salt and light and, being, and, and that salt and light is the joyful embracing of con- contrasting realities. The reality of a dark world, disintegrating world, which you may, uh, you may be a Christ believer and have not accepted that it is a darkening and disintegrating world. That the world is darkening and disintegrating. Now, if you don't believe it, it's because you're not thinking clearly. And you're not paying attention. doesn't mean you're a bad person. You're, you're not paying attention. And, and I can understand why you would just block that out. Because the world is what you know. You know this world. And you want this world, as um, Miroslav Volf talks about, uh, that we, uh, we're like the children of Israel that God wants to take to the promised land and therefore we are not to pray for a better version of Egypt. We're to pray for the promised land. And there's a tendency of we humans, even we Christ believers, there's a tendency that instead of believing in the promised land, God's ultimate fulfillment of all that he said he would do in the earth we tend to just beg him for a better version of Egypt. And so so we need to recognize the fact that even scientists, any credible scientist will tell you that the universe is winding down. That given enough time, we are obeying the second law of thermodynamics which it says we're going from order to disorder. Entropy, order from disorder, energy dissipating. So have you noticed that cynicism grows with each election? It's funny to me that the media never reports that no one believes the media. <laughs> we don't trust politicians. We don't trust preachers and evangelists. Our cynicism is just as, almost as bad. We're, us pastors are almost as mistrusted as politicians. And if you also notice that we're constantly having to struggle against darkness and decay in our personal lives, only with the greatest of effort can you hold friendships and relationships together. Have you noticed that? It takes a lot of effort to hold friendships and relationships together. Only with the greatest of effort can you have a good marriage. Has anybody just found, man, I have an incredible marriage. It's been so easy. It's just a piece of cake. (laughs) Yeah, how long long have you been married? Like two weeks? (laughs) They're going to be the first couple on earth that it was no stress for. Huh? Not yet. yet. (laughs) There's no... Have you noticed that interracial and multicultural harmony, you have to constantly work at it. And I'm not just talking about differences in skin color and skin pigmentation. I'm talking about differences in culture. I've been in the church business all my whole, my entire life. Since I was six years old, I think I've been doing church work. And I know how difficult it is to put different ethnic groups together to do church stuff. I mean, you take a bunch of Spanish Puerto Ricans and a bunch of white evangelicals Pentecost. We got whole different ways of doing stuff, man. You, you 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 take one of our dearly wonderful Brazilian churches in town, and you take this church, and we try to do something together. It's hard. We have whole different ways of. of I had a Brazilian lady tell me a few weeks ago. I was talking to her. And she and her husband run a business, she said, "Oh, in our church, we would never think of making a business decision without talk- business decision without talking to our pastor." What? <laughs> they have an honor culture it's called an honor culture. so I mean <laughs> I have no idea what you guys are doing with your businesses. And Don't start trying to change the culture because i <laughs> I don't want to be." I don't, to, I don't want the responsibility of your investments. <laughs> it's hard, though. See, and here, here's how things have changed. And, and a lot of us don't realize, I think, and I don't, mean, I don't mean to talk down to you. I didn't mean that. I mean, I, I read all kinds of stuff all the time, and, and I'm, a, I'm a nerd, so, so you, you don't want to be like me. But uh, uh, here's, here's what happened in history. Up until like the 17th century... Uh, we had this worldview. Everybody did, just about everybody. Almost everybody had a worldview, whether they were, whether they were Christians or not. they had a worldview that the world was full of trouble and sorrow, and pain. And you read history, man. It is history has been bloody and pandemics and all kinds of horrible stuff throughout history. And and so we believe the world was it was a hard, tough place, and it was supposed to be tough. And there was some kind of there were divine intervention that we were crying out for. If people didn't worship the God of Judeo-Christian God, they worship idols and they worship all kinds of things, all kinds of weird things that they believed impacted Earth. So, so, but but in the 17th century, actually it was some men who had faith in, in, a, in a creator God that began to study the universe. And they, they weren't studying the universe. To, to make us God, little gods, they were studying the universe because they believed the universe revealed the wisdom and glory of God. I'm talking about men like Galileo and I'm talking about men like Sir Isaac, Sir Isaac Newton who studied the universe because they, rebe- they believed the universe revealed the wisdom of God and in their studies they begin to demystify the universe and they invented the field of science. And guess what stupid humanity did with science? We decided that we could solve all the problems of mankind, and we didn't need God. And we didn't need that divine intervention and that hocus-pocus and that weird stuff from, from outer space somewhere. How's that working out? It's not working out, guys. And A, a good example of the growing cynicism is there was an... Uh, A a novel written in 1858 by a guy named R.M. Ballantyne, it showed a group of students landing on an island, shipwrecked on an island, and in the the novel they created utopia. Love, harmony, peace, you know, you know what would happen if any group of teenagers ever landed on an island. You know that's what would happen. They'd love, harmony, peace, and goodwill toward all. And it's funny that that, that uh, uh, William Golding, a Nobel Prize-winning author, read that novel. He got inspired and he wrote a novel with the same scenario, but that novel was called *Lord of the Flies*. <laughs> And Lord of the Flies is about a group of young people who got on an island and they began to kill each other and destroy each other because between 1858 when Ballantyne wrote Coral uh, Island and uh, and 1954, we had figured out that humankind did not have the secret to love and harmony and peace and we did not truly know how to get along. H.G. Wells, a great thinker and writer, wrote The following in 1937, he said, can we doubt that presently our race will more than realize our boldest imaginations, that it will achieve unity and peace, and that our children will live in a world made more splendid and lovely than any palace or garden that we know. Going on from strength to strength in an ever-widening circle of achievement, what man has done, the little triumphs of the present state, form but the prelude to the things that man has yet to do. That's what he wrote in 1937. But listen to what he wrote in 1946, after World War II. The cold-blooded massacres of the defenseless, the return of deliberate and organized torture, mental torment and fear to a world from which things that seemed well-nigh banished has come near to breaking my spirit altogether. Homo sapiens, as we've been pleased to call himself, as he has been pleased to call himself, is played out. His depravity has come near to breaking my spirit. That article, that essay was called A Mind at the End of Its Tether. So Jesus comes along. Jesus had already told us. The world is dark. The world is decaying. That's why you need salt. That's why you need a preserving agent. That's why I need the church in the world to be a preserving agent in the world. I need the church to be the light of the world because the world is not getting brighter and brighter. The world is not getting better and better. The world is winding down. Humanity is full of sin and full of brokenness. And this, you say, I I don't want this dark view. No, 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 this will help you. No, you need to know, this is good news. Somebody said uh, the other day, If you premise your ideology on an unrealistic, optimistic view of human nature, then real humans will always be your enemy because they will forever fail you. If you go into life knowing that we are corrupt, you are going to probably have a first step in being a happier person because you won't be disappointed so much. (laughs) You You won't be so traumatized that people can be jerks and difficult and all the stuff that happens among the human race that I've been privy to watch from the crow's nest for 65 of my years. And I can testify that we're a a sinful race. (laughs) You know, and all those verses in the Bible about there's no righteous, no not one, are becoming more believable to me all the time. But... Hey, now the good news. Now that I know the world is dark and disintegrating, I now can embrace the calling of God to be delightfully different than the world around me. We are the contrast to a dark and disintegrating world. It's disorienting. You ever be in utter darkness? Have you ever been in utter darkness? It's disorienting to be in utter darkness. It's depressing to be in utter utter darkness. There's not a human being on the face of the earth that can stay joyful and happy and buoyant living in utter darkness. It's impossible. Nobody can do it. I don't care how optimistic, I don't care how upbeat you are, I don't care what kind of genes you have, I don't care what kind of chemistry you have. You are not going to stay happy if you're in utter darkness. And Jesus comes to our life and says, I'm the answer. I'm the illumination of your life. I will help you see reality in all its ugliness and I will help you see eternity in all its beauty. And the two will be awesome contrast to one another. So the preservative and the light of the world came to earth. He, not it, brought joy to the world. The people living in great darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of the shadow of death. A light has dawned. Jesus called us out of the darkness and commissioned us to death and darkness as prompters to oppose the decay and darkness with healing and light. When we see the darkness, Jesus said, don't get dark with it. Be healing and light. By being light, by being different, we do a couple of things. One, we expose decay and darkness. We illuminate it. You ever... You ever try to figure out which sock was blue and which was black. I've had to walk outside sometimes. I can't tell the blue from the black sock. Because as sure as I put them on, somebody's going to have these incredible eyes and they're going to, you got a blue sock and a black sock on from across the room. The word good in that phrase where Jesus says, people will see our good deeds, the word good is, one Greek word is, um, is quality, like something has quality. But the word, Jesus didn't use that word. He used a word that meant beauty. He, went, he, he said that your beauty, your beauty will be like light. And the, the beautiful way that you act will be like light. And it will expose the sin and the ugliness around you. And that's how I want you to expose the sin and the ugliness around you, not by ranting, not by angry t- social media posts and memes, but I want, you the media, the, the, I want you to expose the evil around you by being light and being bright and being beautiful. I was talking to uh, Jeff Taylor this week. Jeff's an African-American who comes to our church. And we were talking about this That our love for one another, our friendship, our generosity toward one another, exposes the sin of racism. People want to expose the sin of racism by shouting or burning or whatever. But the best way to expose the sin of racism is when you truly love and get along with and are generous toward a person of another race. It exposes the sin of racism when you are not racist. It exposes the sin of gossip. It's interesting that Jesus said, you will light the room. I like that. I'm glad he used the word room. Even though he called us the light of the world, he said, if you set a lamp on a stand, it will light the room. It seems to me that Jesus is narrowing down my focus so that I'm not feeling the burden of lighting the world all the time. I'm, I'm merely called by him to light the room that I'm in. For some of you, it's just that cubicle next to you. you you're, you're, your company is so corrupt that, that you can only light up a couple of cubicles. That's all you can do. But that, that's okay. <laughs> that's okay. He says, I want you to, you, you're not gossiping, you're, you're not doing the office gossip. Will expose the gossip, and it will it will bring some persecution sometimes, but that's okay. He said he said that's okay. Rejoice, rejoice! You're persecuted. Rejoice. Yes, that's different. Rejoice. Expose. Does your life, you know, does your life of sexual purity and holiness, it will expose. The sin, of, the sin of sexual depravity that's around you. Does your life show up the beauty of Christ in contrast to the ugliness of the world or do you blend in? So we bring illumination to the sin around us. We also bring healing and hope and joy to the room around Remember I said a minute ago, darkness brings depression. So you bring joy and you bring hope and you bring illumination you bring healing and hope and joy to the victims of decay and darkness see the reality is that we are living in a death dealing environment we're living where we're living can entirely be depressing uh, jason and i were talking on friday and uh, about this and or, or one day this week i don't remember i think it was friday we were talking about th- this uh, that we're we're living in a we're living in this death dealing machine and that we fear, we absolutely fear mortality. We fear being gone. We fear the memory of us being erased from the face of the earth. Uh, Have you noticed how much, and, and, and he was talking to me about a book he had read that talks about our constant immortality projects. Have you noticed that our desire for immortality drives public discourse? I don't know what happened to that ozone layer, but the ozone hole, what happened, Gene, that got healed up or something. I don't hear anything about that. Huh? But a few years ago, that was going to get us. You know, we were, I was feeling guilty. Back in those days, I used hairspray. And I was feeling guilty about using hairspray. Because I was making the ozone layer, and pretty soon I guess we are going to get all sucked out of the, up through that hole in the ozone. I don't know. And then, of course, the nuclear arms race, which is very real. I, I don't know if you've ever been out to Arizona. A friend of mine and I went a while back and went into the ICBM uh, place where they had the... And boy, that's that's a weird feeling to be in there, where you know at one time the button could have been pushed that would have caused Western Western civilization perhaps to be destroyed. And uh, uh, we, could, we, we have the power to... For, uh, uh, for uh, to mutually destroy one another. And and that that drove public discourse, and now the, the latest is climate change. It Dri- drives public discourse. Uh, one politician announced that in 12 years we would all be gone, you know? And uh, I think she was exaggerating a little bit, but... Uh... <laughs> but... Uh, I, well, that's not my point. My point is not to be political. My point is our, our immortality projects... Di- di- Uh, drive the public discourse. We're absolutely terrified of being no more. And into this scene comes the Lord Jesus Christ and says, I come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. I come that you might have life. Because even if we solve climate change, even if we can prove that there's a way that we can lower the temperature of the earth... By driving a a Prius. Even if we can prove that we can do that. Even if we can prove and do that. I'm telling you. Death still has a 100% uh, victory rate. (laughs) Death still gets us 100% of the time. We need eternal life. We need Jesus. A Christ lit life will never go out. And a gospel-saturated life will never be forgotten. So and, and I wish I had time to unpack that statement, Melissa, because there's a lot more there. That if you will live your life for Christ, I'm telling you, if you live your life for Christ, you will leave a legacy. You will leave a legacy. If you will live for Christ, and you will do good deeds in the earth, if you will go about doing good in your life and healing all who are oppressed of the devil with your life, you will never be forgotten. People will talk about you from the generations to come. Your name will never be erased from the earth if you will become the light of the world and if you will become the salt of the earth. The second thing that comes to my mind is that being salt and light is the joyful realization of God's compassionate sovereignty. Even if the mountains were to crumble, Scripture says, and the hills disappear, my uh, uh, my heart of steadfast, faithful love will never leave you, God says. And my covenant of peace with you will never be shaken, says Yahweh, whose love and compassion will never give up on you. In other words, the problems of the world are all part of God's plan. God's plan. If God isn't sovereign, then I will find myself trying to reverse the irreversible. But when I yield the understanding that God engineered the principles of decay and darkness as a planned limitation on sinful humankind, then I'm able to actually rest in His love and just be the difference that His Spirit will enable me to be and I can stop worrying about all the immortality projects. Romans eight twelve says, I consider that the present, uh, present sufferings, 8.18 rather, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us for the creation waits in eager eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation, listen to this, the creation was subjected to frustration. Subjected? Subjected by who? By God. The, 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 The creation was subjected to frustration not by its own choice but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the the freedom and glory of the children of God. That's the immortality project that I'm a part of and that I have yielded to. The final thing and the third thing that Christ's words in Matthew 11 and there's so much there I, it's going to take me four weeks to unpack what Jesus meant in that little passage being salt and light is about giving everyone around you a taste of eternity first Peter 3:14 says but in your hearts revere Christ as Lord always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have but do this with gentleness and respect so that passage brings up two critical questions why are they asking I I mean there's two answers to one critical question it brings up there's one critical question there's two critical answers the question is why do you I mean, I mean the critical question is I'll get this I'll get this out in about 5 minutes. I mean help me. Jesus help me. The critical question is that the person who's asking says why is hope rational? Why is hope rational? They're looking at the same world you're looking at. They're reading the same headlines you're reading. They're encountering the same difficulties that I think we're all having in relationships. And it's getting hard to keep your friends because politics is so dividing us. And they are asking the question, why is hope rational? And the critical answer to that is, number one, is I have hope and the question is why do you have hope and the question is second question is why is why how can hope be rational how can hope be rational in a world that everything I've said to you this morning in the first three-quarters of the sermon was illustrating to you and I believe in my mind at least proving to me that hope without Christ is not rational and so we have now find a rationality for hope. And the rationality for hope is that Jesus Christ came to earth, died on a cross, rose from the dead, has fulfilled a gazillion prophecies, proven that the Word of God is faithful and capable and credible, and every new scientific discovery is affirming that what God said about the universe is really, really true. I talked to the students here on Tuesday. We talked about we talked about the the apologetics and the proof that the universe was created by God. And I'm telling you, the evidence is mounting. More every scientific discovery, they're take, having to take a step back. Darwinism has been has been has been denied by more and more scientists. It's being unworkable that that the species could adapt that, that, that whole that whole that whole. Um, a species could, could, through natural selection, that you could become an entirely different uh, uh, species than you are. It's just, it's just, we are on solid ground, folks. We're on solid ground. We're on solid ground. The hope of the gospel is the only hope that is rational. Christianity is when you and I challenge reality with the ideal. Christianity is when you respond to what is with what ought to be. That's your job this week. It is no coincidence that most of the Bible is written by and about people who are under extreme pressure. Everyone should want to know why you are hopeful. Everyone should want to know why you feel significant. You are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. That means you're significant. Your significance is not given to you by a title at your company. Your significance is not given to you by what by how much money you have, but your significance is given to you by a job description given to you from God that says you are the light of the world and you are the salt of the earth. Everyone should know why in the heck do you feel significant? Everyone should want to know what you know that they don't know. Conclusion you can't be the salt of the earth if you've lost your salt. In in biblical times they would take salt which is sodium chloride and they would add a substance to it uh, to withstand humidity So if you put a pile of this mixture out on the ground and it got exposed to the elements the salt would wash away and all would be left would be the other elements that were there that were tasteless and it looked like salt but you put it on your food and it wouldn't taste like salt. You see We have been given by God the flavor of humanity. We all have the flavor of humanity. It's not evil. It's so we can navigate on the earth. We have earthly and human ambitions and earthly and human desires. They're foretaste and they're they're signals of God, but they're not God. But what we lost in Adam and Eve's fall is we lost the spark of the divine we lost our salt and Jesus comes to the earth and says I'm here to relight you I'm here to restore the divine spark in you (laughs) I'm here to give you back real joy I'm here to give you back your significance I'm here to give you back your peace I'm here to give you back your power I'm here to give you back your dominion over the forces of darkness. Amen? I'm here to do that. You have to be lit by Jesus in order to be the light of the world. There's no other way. You have to be seasoned with Christ in order to be the preserving element in your office, in your house, in your neighborhood, in your, even in your church. Remember what I said two weeks ago. We bring Christ into our hearts with our words. So today, let's use our words to bring Christ into our into our decay, and into our darkness. And if you haven't received Christ today, I hope you will. If you receive Christ, but you know you've lost your divine spark, re-receive him today.